On this edition of the Scott Thompson Show podcast with me, Scott Radley, we talk about the fact that the city is going to be lowering speed limits in all residential areas to 40. Well, that makes a lot of sense. We want people to be safe. But is this the first step towards doing this all through the city on all kinds of roads, which would be a way different story and a way bigger fight? Rick Zamperin and I chat about the Simone Lawrence suspension. What's happened with that? It's been a month now. When do they make a decision? And there is a play coming out about Elizabeth Wetlawfer. Who is Elizabeth Wetlawfer? You know the name. She's that nurse that killed eight people in seniors' homes in Woodstock. Do we really want to play about her? Well, we'll talk to the guy who's behind it. All coming up. Today on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML. You heard that the city is going to be reducing the speed on residential streets throughout the city now. It's a universal decision. Uh, All city streets are going to be dropped down to 40 kilometers an hour, 30 at times in school zones, but generally it's going to be a 40 kilometer an hour rule through this city for safety reasons is the decision or is the reason for this. I want to bring in Councillor Lloyd Ferguson, Ancaster Councillor. Thanks for doing this today. Appreciate it. I'm glad to be on with you, Scott. Uh, What is your position on this? I know this has been contentious at times, not necessarily with the residential side of things, but with speed limit decisions in the city. Where do you stand on this? Well, uh, as chair of of the Public Works Committee, this has been uh, debated at length for a number of years. And uh, the province finally gives municipalities the necessary legislation to implement this if they want to. I can tell you that the number one call to my office is about speeding on residential streets and aggressive driving. And in fact, our city traffic department logged about 700 calls per year on complaints about um, speeding in residential streets. So I supported it yesterday. I think it's been a long time coming. It does not apply to arterial roads. It does apply, though, to minor uh, collector roads. And um, an example of that would be Meadowlands Boulevard or Kitty Murray Lane on in the Meadowlands, where Gulf Links Road is not. And uh, so it would stay at 50 kilometers. I know a lot of people come into the Meadowlands, so they're familiar with those two streets, so I can benchmark off them. And, and so what we're going to do is a three-year implementation program, and um, they're doing some 45 in uh, 2019, 45 neighborhoods. Uh, in Ancaster, as an example, we're doing three. We're doing the Meadowlands, we're doing the Spring Valley area in what's called Leeming, or the area bound by 403 Hamilton Drive and Fiddler's Green Road. And so, it'll, as I say, it'll take a number of years for this to be uh, fully implemented because there's a lot of signage and, and changes to uh, notifications to the public that has to go on, by, uh, communications out. And this is a great opportunity to do it in your show, Scott. So I, I think, and you know, Lloyd, as I say, you've, you've been involved in the discussions around the Aberdeen thing that we all know about from the last number of weeks, and there's been great debate about that. But I think leaving that one aside for a moment, I think most people can wrap their head and come to grips and be probably in agreement with the idea of slowing people down on residential streets. It makes some sense for sure. And based on the number of complaints that you say and calls you have to your office, I, I think that makes a, a reasonable amount of sense. That's- well, it does. And, and, and let me just share this with you. The World Health Organization has studied this, and um, they, they've done all the necessary testing. And a vehicle dra- traveling at 50 kilometers per hour will typically need 36 meters to stop, while a vehicle traveling at 40 kilometers will require 27 meters. That's 9 meters or 30 feet uh, less time to stop in the event that a child runs out on a residential street. And and uh, that's an important statistic to make sure we're not doing this on emotion, that we're doing it based on fact. And uh, uh, that's an argument that uh, if I get any people who oppose it, we'll be using to defend what we're doing. Um, 
because it is a number one issue. So again, I, I absolutely I believe that most people listening, most people around the city will look at this and say, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. We want to have safe residential streets for sure. Now, there are a couple things, though, that I will I do want to ask you about this. One is there are already groups out there, um, they're online or they're activist groups or they are websites or community groups or whatever, who are saying, you know what, this isn't nearly good enough. We, we have to eventually get the residential streets down to 30 kilometers an hour for them to be safe. D- do you ever see that happening? Well, well, there is a pilot project, a five-year pilot that's going on in the north end now, Uh where people were buzzing down to the waterfront and exceeding the speed limit. So we put a place up on it, but the legislation doesn't allow us to go to 30 yet. Um, it, it allows us to take it down to 40. And and so I think we just need to see the impact of that. You know, it's going to be hard to please everybody every time, but I think this is a major step forward to try to get our heads around it, particularly in residential residential streets. The other issue, and I mentioned it a moment ago, is there were, how long did the Aberdeen debate go on for? Several months, anyway, that we just wrapped up. But it's different. That wasn't a speed limit issue. That was an issue, do we switch it from a four-lane road to a two-lane road by allowing parking on both sides? Right. That said, though, I do believe, or I suspect that after we've had the, that's an arterial road, that's that's not a residential street, but do you agree, do you disagree that there is a chance that we see, if this thing works with the residential streets, that we see a push to have arterial roads reduced to 40 kilometers an hour? Well, you know, we've already done one in Kenilworth Avenue, and that was at the request of the ward councillor, and after consultation with uh, the other councillors whose constituents would use Kenilworth Avenue, particularly those in, in Ward 6 coming down the hill. I can tell you personally, I have no desire to reduce the speed limit on Wilson Street or Mohawk or Russo or Gulf Links or Southcote. Uh, they're, um, they've got sidewalks on them. Uh, there's a wide boulevard. Uh, at school locations, we have crossing guards in place. But uh, if, if that does happen, it would happen on an ad hoc basis, but would need the full support of all the council. So uh, if, it's, if it's going to interfere with the ability of people to, to commute to work and get home, uh, I'll have trouble with that. Um, you know, if to reduce Main Street or King Street down to 40 kilometers per hour is probably not appropriate because they are arterials. They're not uh, residential streets. Uh, but they, it, it's not to say that we can't do it because the legislation does permit it, but it's not part of this resolution. Well, w- one of your colleagues, and I asked because one of your colleagues uh, had, a, had a quote, they said that this was another step in, quote, shifting the driving culture. And I guess I'm wondering when I look at the Aberdeen debate and then I look at this, how much do we want to shift the driving culture in this city? It sounds like there are people who really want to shift it a lot and others who are less eager to go down that road too far. But how much do we want to shift the driving culture? Well, uh, still about 75% of, of, of all our citizens get around by car. Uh, there's some by tr- public transit, there's some by bicycle, there's some by walking. But, uh, you know, th- th- that depends on personal ideology. Uh, I, I know full well in my community of Ancaster, the car is an important part of their life. There's limited transit, and they, a lot of them have to get downtown to work or off to Toronto or someplace else. And and uh, but I, I recognize that some of my colleagues are interested in getting people out of their cars. Um, I'm not sure how far that will go. Uh, uh, I'm not anti-car, if you will. You know, I, I commute to work every day. I get that. And uh, but that'll be the subject of further debate. Not part of this legislation. Further debate that uh, not just one individual's ideology would make that happen. It has to be a majority of council. 
But you, I think you spoke to it last week or so in the Aberdeen debate two weeks ago. Uh, there are those who believe that attempts are being made to make the city less drivable intentionally. Oh yeah, no question. No question. With, Some members of council feel that way. With the intent of what? Forcing people onto public transit or walking or bicycling? Yeah, finding different modes. Is this, however... And that's okay, that's okay if, if you live in the downtown area, because you can bicycle to work. But if you live on the mountain or live in Ancaster, that's not practical. That you still have to have a, um, a vehicle in order to get down to... If your office is downtown, you have to have a vehicle to get there. And so what's, one size doesn't fit all. But if uh, if the residents of Ward 1 or Ward 2 have, um, um, would like to see that happen, uh, it'll be a difficult sell to the rest of council on arterial roads. Just like Aberdeen was a difficult sell. Uh, it ultimately carried on a pilot basis and only after Queen Street is, is switched to two-way. And um, part of the resolution is that staff have to report back on the Aberdeen issue of what congestion is happening. Are people really backing up onto the 403, waiting to get onto Aberdeen Avenue? Are people backing all the way up the hill on Queen Street? And and uh, that'll be reported back to us after this is implemented. And it certainly wasn't a unanimous vote on that issue. Well, and I, you know, I don't know exactly where you stand on this, but I, I mean, I absolutely uh, believe that... Th- there will be further pushes to lower the arterial roads down to 40. I absolutely believe that's coming. And I don't know which streets and I don't know where exactly. I don't suspect in your ward you're going to be pushing too hard for it from what you're saying. But, you know, we're going to end up in this debate. It's going to be, a, I think, a significant debate about whether or not we want Main Street and King Street and James Street and, and you name the ones to be well, 40 the, now. The part that worries me about that is that um, if people have their businesses in the lower city, and we encourage people to locate in the downtown. That's where our, most of our office buildings are is in the downtown. Uh, and if we make ourselves less competitive by doing that and less appealing to investors to come there, they may pick up and move somewhere else. Now, maybe they'll move up to Ancaster. But, um, you know, the congestion on the 403 is unconscionable right now. I was uh, on that this morning. Now, if I understand from CHML, there may have been a collision out there this morning. But there was, was, yeah. It backed up almost to Wilson Street, and of course I'm ducking off trying to find other roads. Uh, you go across the, the link and get on Upper James, go down to way out of the way. But I'm plugging up those other roads because the 403 is so congested, and and my community is at its wits end about that. It's a huge delay, uh, and we've allowed all this development to occur without having the proper infrastructure in place. And now if we if we purposely congest them further, that's going to that's going to cause a lot of stress on a lot of people who have to depend on commuting to get to work. Well, isn't there also a butterfly effect to this that, you know, one thing leads to another? Using the Aberdeen example again, now that Aberdeen is going to be having parking on both sides, so it's down to one lane each direction, there are going to be people, I would guarantee, who are going to try and peel off and go through the back streets. So now in our efforts to try and make children safer by not having cars whipping along Aberdeen, you're going to have more cars driving on the residential roads that kids are walking on. That's called cut through. Yes, yeah, so that's going to happen. I, I think that I think that's already happening. Quite frankly, um, uh, and we don't want to encourage that. In um, uh, purposely in Ancaster, I do not. The other wards do. I do not support the use of speed bumps because speed bumps uh, and stop signs they they've been proven to not reduce speed because people just hit their brakes and come to a quick stop and accelerate off. Speed bumps punish everybody where about 2 to 3% are the people that speed. And, and you do that through enforcement. Uh, don't punish everybody because it's hard in your suspension, but it's hard to live next to those things too, stop signs or speed helms, because 
you got squealing brakes going on in front of your house, and then the the pollution of the car accelerating away afterwards. And uh, you know, I'm I'm hopeful that this reduction of 40 kilometers will impact the public to slow it down a bit. I I realize they're still going to some people are going to drive over the speed limit, but the the uh, the fine is much higher when you're going mm. 20 over versus 10 over. Sure. And, well, how and, are you going to enforce it? You're going to have to have some police out there a lot, especially oh, when I, this I, changes. I do that regularly. I'll get calls from my constituents about speeding, particularly they'll give you the time of day and the location. And our crimes officers, um, uh, who are our, our executive assistants report to, will will listen very carefully to where we want enforcement. And they go out and do it. But, you know, nine times out of ten, they're, they're ticketing somebody who lives right in that area. But it's still, it, it, we need to put the message out there that um, exceeding the speed limit is going to, you're going to go home with a certificate. And uh, it won't be a pleasant one. And it's far more painful when, this, when you're breaking by 20 kilometers instead of mm. 10 or breaking it by 30 uh, instead of 20 uh, with the speed limit reduction. So this is a major first step to trying to fix that problem, which is chronic across the whole city. This is going to be a, a, well, depending on which side of the ticket you're on, a nice cash cow for the city or, or not. But I mean, if, if the police do have a crackdown on all these 40s in residential, there's going to be some money flowing in. Well, yeah, we, the city enjoys that revenue. Uh, uh, I mean, this is where things like red light cameras help. I think that's changed people and they don't run lights like they used to. It's a pretty stiff fine, but we now collect more money from red light fines than we do from the police enforcement to show you um, how it's working. And that revenue has declined, although we're adding more red light cameras every year because they're not cheap to install. But it's, it's, um, it's been a, a good source of revenue to us to allow us to go and do more road safety measures. But, you know, these, these ladder crossings, you've probably also seen that the um, we're now permitted to put pedestrian crossings in with the wigwam lights that flash yellow alternating when a pedestrian pushes a button. We can pay for that through the red light revenues. Ward 12 Councillor Lloyd Ferguson, I wish we had more time, but thank you so much for taking some this morning. Appreciate it. Anytime, Scott. Thanks. Uh, again, you know what? I think most people are on board and okay with the 40s on the residential. I'm certainly on board. I'm, I'm okay with that. Slow people down around the houses. But as soon as we start getting, if this becomes a first step, if this becomes the impetus, the springboard to say, hey, we did it on the residential streets. Now let's start doing it on the bigger streets, on the arterials. No. No, 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 this is not, this should not, I don't think, this should be then the start of making this city undrivable. If you've been to Toronto anytime recently, uh-huh. don't go, let's not try to make this city undrivable, even though I suspect that that is the intention of some people. It's not a good idea. It's not a good idea. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. Rick Zamperin is in studio to talk a little CFL, two stories in particular that, um, let's start with this first one, Rick, because back on the third play, fourth play? Third play. Of the season. Yep. June 13th? A while back now. We're coming up, it's a month that we're looking at. Is it a month exactly? Is today the, well, Today's almost, the 11th. 11th, yeah. thank you, I've lost track. But basically a month. Uh, Simone Lawrence hits Zach Caleros in the head. Mm-hmm. It's the, it seems to look like exactly what the CFL has been preaching against, seems to, although we'll see if they agree. Right. They give him a suspension. He appeals. We are a month later, and we still don't have a decision on this. 
There are only nine teams in this league, and to the best of my knowledge, there is not one other player who is facing a suspension right now. Right. What could possibly be taking so long? Yeah, it's not like there's you know 17 players out in the hallway waiting to meet with Randy Ambrosi, the commissioner of the CFL. Um, never mind that a month has passed and we still don't have a decision, but the hearing was held on Tuesday. So nearly a month passed before a hearing. So, you know, the play happens, it's the third play of the season. Uh, Caleros is hit uh, with a headshot from Simone Lawrence, a late, low blow, uh, in which, you know, Zach was uh, committing himself to the, the ground. The play was dead. The CFL is taking it upon themselves to try and protect quarterbacks a little bit more than they have in the past with this new rule. Um, so, yes, almost a month later, the hearing is finally held because there's an appeal process, and the CFLPA appealed the two-game suspension, which would be more uh, or, or a, a greater suspension than it has been handed down to other players in the past. So Simone and the PA uh, appeals the process. So a few weeks later, they finally have the hearing on Tuesday. It's a lengthy affair, which 12 is what we hours. understand. Yeah, 12 hours. What they could be deciding or talking about in 12 hours, I'm not sure whether they... The hit took about a third of a second. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I have no idea what why it took that long. Um, I don't think there was a heated argument. It sounds like both parties came out of it understanding you know, what the next steps are. And basically what the next step is, is uh, the CFL is hoping that two-game ban sticks. The PA is looking for probably at least a game, or if not, maybe a fine would be, I guess, the 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 lowest or least uh, you know penalty that uh, Simone would face. Uh, but at the end of the day, it has taken a ridiculous amount of time to get this thing done, where it should have been it should have been taken care of within a week. I can't understand why it did not. So there's a number of things I want to get to here. Uh, starting with the first one, you've described the hit perfectly as you do you used to, you're a former play-by-play guy you're really good at describing stuff that happens on a football field <laughs> everybody understands now you've got a quarterback who's giving himself up a player who comes in and clobbers him in the head mm-hmm. and again exactly what the CFL seemingly has been trying to get rid of now it doesn't make Simone Lawrence a bad person that that's been the fight all along so right. he's not a bad no, guy no. we're not talking about him being a bad guy yeah. it was a bad hit yeah this is not we have ample video evidence you don't need this Zapruder film I just, I fail to understand, A, how the hearing could go on for 12 hours, as you said. But how do you have a sense of any kind of justice in this league and any kind of discipline if it takes this long to come to any kind of pretty, pretty simple seeming decision? Yeah. Well, let's put it this way. So this happened in game one. Uh, He, Simone, has been allowed to play in games one, obviously, because he wasn't ejected from the game, Uh, playing games two, three, and four. Uh, number five's coming up this Saturday against Calgary. A decision, obviously, is not going to be made in time for that game. So he's going to well, play. Well, maybe, in, but probably not. Maybe I have my doubts, though. Obviously, if history, <laughs> if recent history proves itself right, he's going to be playing in, in Saturday's game. At least that's the expectation. Then they go on the bye week. So for the first five weeks of game action, following you know a, a, a hit that happened a month ago, he's still going to be allowed to play. So. If you're the Saskatchewan Rough Riders, who has Zach Caleros on the six-game injured list now, and who knows what his football future is. That's really up in the air at this point. It's a big question mark. But you're seeing a player who has put your one of your star players on the shelf for a third of the season continue to play for his team, 
and yes, earn a paycheck because that's part of it as well, but with no penalty other than the 25-yard penalty he accrued during the game, but with no you know additional uh, penalty against Lawrence, Saskatchewan's got to be furious. I think um, the league and Commissioner Randy Ambrosi is quietly perturbed at how this has you know turtled along. And I, th- I think if you're the PA, you have a bit of egg on your face, too, because all along they've preached uh, an increased uh, uh, amount of security for their players, security and safety for play- their players on the field. And they're kind of going against the grain with trying to protect Simone Lawrence. I'm not saying that they're not protecting Zach Caleros because, you know, they're, they're going through uh, the proper channels and getting him healthy and, and, and back to the field is what they should be doing. But in the same light, they're also saying this infraction doesn't deserve a two-game ban when I think most fans would probably agree that it does. If not, it should have been a little bit more. You know who else is, I'm sure, perturbed by this is the Toronto Argonauts and the Montreal Alouettes. Sure. Who, yeah. Uh, you know, I mean, Hamilton beat Toronto 64-14 the next game. Yeah. Looks like a complete blowout, but up until early, midway through the second, it was tie game. Yeah, the game is very much in hand. And it was a Simone Lawrence play that really turned the tables on that one. Yes. And who knows what happens if he doesn't make that play. Chances are the tie cats still win, but we don't know that. Again, it's not about wanting the tie cats to lose. It's not about wanting Simone Lawrence to be seen as the bad guy. Mm -hmm. It is how do you have a league that can't make your discipline system work in any kind of timely fashion. Yeah. Yeah, it's uh it's mind-boggling really how it has taken this long to get a hearing and then a decision. Uh, again, th- this could have been done easily in the week. You know, here's CFL puts down the penalty, it's a two-game ban, and that didn't come out the next day either. That was a few days after, you know, after the play. So I get that they want to analyze, maybe they want to talk to certain individuals, uh maybe they want to talk to the official that threw the flag, all that kind of stuff. That I think it happened in a day or so. You know, you pick up the phone. You don't have to have a face-to-face in these instances. You know, you have the game film we from the Skype broadcast. We have Skype now. Exactly. We have FaceTime. Yeah. So, you know, th- this is drag on far too long. I just the, the ban should have came in place. The appeal should have been made a couple of days later, and then a decision. You know, a week from the original play, and that's it. And then both sides have to live with what the decision is. Maybe I'm missing something obvious, and probably I am. But I look at this and I think if you had a rule in place that says in our league the hearing, the penalty, and the appeal must be done in the span of a week. Right. And you would think that would be in the collective bargaining agreement, but apparently it's not. Because again, I'm looking, thinking, <laughs> what, what does his lawyer or his representative right. from the Player Association come up with that they are going to argue for 12 hours? Now, I don't know that they were doing all the talking. Sure. But still. Okay. So you, did you intend to hit him in the head? No. Okay. Uh, were you intending to injure him? No. Okay. Uh, what other questions would you ask Simone Lawrence at that point? Uh, you know, what what past infractions do you have? And the league would know that, you know. So you no, don't even need no to ask pr- him no about that. No prior suspensions, yeah. Okay, so Simone Lawrence, uh, to my mind, you've dealt with Simone Lawrence by asking him two questions. Did you mean to hurt yeah. him? Did you mean to hit him? And did you apologize, which we all know that he did after the game too, which doesn't really matter. But again, but but you, again that stuff is dealt with because you've seen that publicly. Yeah. Uh, you asked Zach Caleros a couple of questions. Sure. You ask the referees a couple of questions, and then you look at the film. Rick, I, look, it's not about Simone Lawrence, again. It's about any player. It's you player wa- X and, and player Y. You watch that tape, and you say, hmm, okay, what happened in that tape? Now, if there is some wild explanation, I'm sure Simone Lawrence could explain that in the span of 10 minutes. Right. 
I tripped on a shoelace and lost my balance, and therefore I went plunging into him. Okay, let's go back to the tape. Can yeah. we see the shoelace that is loose? Did anyone right. else say that? Did you tell anyone? Uh, to, to me, this thing just makes a mockery. It makes a mockery of the CFL's alleged discipline system. Yeah. The only other thing I can think of in terms of why would it take this long, and I'm not sure this this would even take that long of a time. I mean, 12 hours is a long time to be discussing and debating things. But did one side or did both sides prevent uh, or present certain options? A, Simone and, and your representative, would you be okay with, you know, a one-game ban and an X amount of dollar figure fine? Uh, if you don't want to sit out for two games? Uh, or, you know, do we stick with the two games? Or do we have no games and, you know, a little bit higher of a fine? I mean, really, I mean, we've just had this discussion in 30 seconds as opposed to 12 hours. So I'd love to have the transcript of the whole meeting. That'd no, be, I would That would be a fascinating read. Well, <laughs> I think it might put everyone to sleep. But, uh, again, you, you there is an argument to be made. Whether or not, and this is not a death penalty case, all right, but whether you agree with the death penalty in the States or not, there has always been an argument that it's that it's supposed to be a deterrent. That's the whole reason we have right. or they have the death penalty. Yeah. But if you have the death penalty given to someone and then they sit on death row for 30 years, right. there's no deterrent when they're finally executed because they're now not even the same person. Yeah. Again, I'm not arguing this is a death penalty case, but I'm saying if you have this and you can't even impose the discipline mm-hmm. within a reasonable period of time, it's no longer a deterrent to other players to do exactly. it. Exactly. Because well, so case Lauren, point. well, sorry. His next three, assuming he doesn't get any suspension, uh, Calgary, Winnipeg, Saskatchewan, BC are his next games. None against the East. Mm -hmm. The East are the teams the Ticats have to win. He played the East. He got all the games against the East in. Now, if he doesn't play those and they lose to the West, who cares? Here's here's the scenario the CFL has to be careful of, and they went through it uh, late last year with the Jonathan Rose situation. Yes. you know, he manhandled. Explain that one again. Well, basically, this is the Ottawa. the East final, Tie Cats in Ottawa, and uh, you know the the the, the plays towards the sideline, and there's a big uh, kind of ruckus between the Tie Cats and the Red Blacks, and Jonathan Rose of Ottawa is in the mix, and an official you know makes his way in there to break things up, and gets basically pushed to the side and pushed over and, and on his keister by Jonathan Rose of the Red Blacks, and which Rose, is the biggest no no in all of sports. You cannot touch an official, and at the time, I think he was given a one game suspension. Would which would have been the Grey Cup. Uh, so the appeal was made, and event, and he, he got to play in the Grey Cup, long story short, because that appeal process could not happen before the Grey Cup. And I think at the end of the day, he was given a fine and was not ultimately suspended, because that could have carried over to the season, and has not missed a second of action. So what if this Simone Lawrence-Zach Caleros play happened in game 18 or 19 or 20 of the season or in the playoff, and now you're waiting a month to have a hearing? Uh, it can't happen. It leads to, well, these things inevitably, in sports, when you put in a rule and you do these things and then you make it fuzzy, they inevitably come back to bite you. And the mm-hmm. Jonathan Rose one is a perfect example where yep. the guy got to play. I mean, I'm thinking when the NHL put the toe in the crease rule, you knew eventually a Stanley right. Cup winning goal was going to be scored with a toe in the crease because that's what is going to happen. Yeah. Your example, while it may be the extreme, I don't doubt that it could very easily happen mm-hmm. that you end up with someone significant. And I don't remember, did Jonathan Rose have any impact in the Grey Cup? But if you, it was, it was minimal. You could very easily have a star player who yeah. makes a different difference in the game sure. who should not have been playing. What if it's a star quarterback who does something egregious to an official or another player and they're technically suspended, but because of the appeal process, can, uh, is still allowed to play? I just, as I say, I fail to see how you can 
this is not a complicated thing. This yeah. was not this was not something that was there was no video of where you have to rely right. on fifty five witnesses. Yeah. This is not a complicated case. It brings to mind the uh, strength of the Canadian Football League, or at least the ability to impose a penalty on a player. Because when you look at the National Hockey League, the NFL, MLB, NBA, when an infraction occurs, uh, there is a penalty handed out rather swiftly. Yes, there is an appeal, and sometimes that penalty is diminished. But that penalty is then enforced very quickly after that. Uh, you know, whether you're Ezekiel Elliott or, or any other superstar in the NFL or the NBA, if you do something wrong in the NHL, when you're suspended, you're suspended. I mean, there's no waiting around. The exception being Major League Baseball, which is the stupidest, even more stupid than the CFL, because the rule is you appeal and your hearing is next time you come to New York, which has played to the benefit of the Mets and Yankees every single time because you have your hearing the day you arrive and then, oh, I can't play against the the Mets or the Yankees. That one seems rather stupid to me. But anyway, all right. Next point Mm -hmm. on the CFL agenda today. We've got a couple of minutes left. Uh, Last game, BC and Toronto are playing. No time left or almost no time left on the clock. BC tries to kick a 42-yard field goal. Not outrageous in the modern era. Misses and wins the game on a rouge. Yes. (sighs) On maybe the most exciting rouge we've ever seen. Or one of. You know, when when you're missing a field goal and you have Chris Rainey in the back of the end zone catching the football but then stepping out of bounds, I mean, the agony in that, I think, is interesting because if you just have the football sail out of the end zone, okay, it's a rouge, we win the game. But when you have an individual who had maybe a fraction of a chance to catch the ball and stay in bounds, catch the ball and not stay in bounds, and you see the post-game interview with him in which he's taking a lot of the blame, and undeservedly so. I mean, it was one play. But, I mean, I think that added a lot of spice to that rouge. I, I go back to my point that there's a lot about the CFL that I love, a lot about the Canadian game that I love. It is unfathomable to me that you can win a game on a failure. Can you imagine if that was the Grey Cup? On a failure. Yeah. And and again, I don't really care what Americans say about us, but Sports Illustrated was on their website. The mockery was unbelievable. Mm-hmm. He missed. How do you miss and get rewarded still, for it? Still and I know I've heard all the arguments. Well, it's the the you you are rewarded because you've moved the ball down close enough to the end zone <laughs> where they can't move it out. Fine. So if I throw a long pass and it just tips off the fingers of my receiver mm-hmm. in the end zone, but he doesn't catch it, should we get three points or right. four points? Because yeah. he almost caught he it. Close. He sure. got close. It's a, it is, we can discuss whether there's a place for the Rouge at all in the Canadian Football League still, but to win a game, Rick, mm-hmm. on a failure seems monumentally silly. Yeah. I've always been of the, the mindset that I don't mind the Rouge in a punting situation. Uh, because I think it takes a little more effort to get it in the end zone, especially from you know a certain distance. And especially if the ball has to stay in the exactly. end zone. You can't just blast it through. Yeah, I mean, but on a missed field goal, so yes, you are rewarding the team and the, and the individual kicker a point for not completing his task, basically. So you're giving him a half a check mark, and in this case it won, you know, BC the game. Uh, I, I'd be all for removing the rouge on a missed field goal. However, still allowing... Uh, the return man to return the football for a possible touchdown. Okay, so a punt, to your point, a punt, you are aiming the ball and you have to keep the ball in the end zone. Mm. And so uh, grudgingly, I would say, okay, if you punt it into the end zone and it stays in there and they lose, grudgingly, I can find myself in some (laughs) some level of agreement with that. But again, it is a missed 
field goal. It goes down sure. as a miss. Yeah. And no field goal kicker in any football league is paid to be a good misser. Mm-hmm. Even if you can hit it hard, you're not paid to be, a, you're paid to make field goals. Right. I just, oh. So the other argument to that is, um, let's say he, he misses this field goal. Yes. And Rainey catches the ball in the back of the end zone. Now he has basically to out-sprint every other player on the BC lines to at least get to the one-yard line or out outside the plane of, of uh, that goal line. So that in itself would be an exciting play, I think, towards the end of the game. He's got to get it out. And uh, he's able to kick it out if if he's so happily to do so. Um, so in that sense, you know, there's a little level of excitement. But when's the last time we saw a scenario like that? 2002. 2002 was the last 2002 time? 2002 was the last rouge for a win. And guess who was playing? Was it the Ticats? Toronto Argonauts in Hamilton at Iverwind Stadium. And the Argos kicked the ball in and the Ticats stepped out the back of the end zone <laughs> catching the ball <laughs> wow. and lost the game. Ron Lancaster and Pinball Clemens were the coaches. Holy cow. It just, but that, that was a punt. Again, I can somehow, because right. the intention of a punt is to place it in a spot yeah, in a and then spot. it's not, a punt at least would not be a failure if you did that. Right, right. You, the punter at least did something successful. Yeah. I don't know. I just, I look at this and I go, oh boy, oh boy. So right. I, I, I know the Canadian football fans lose their minds I, whenever I you question. I see the CFL purists emailing you in a rage right now. Uh, and I get it. I get it. <laughs> on a punt, I'm okay. I can, I can convince myself on that one. But the missed field goal, it is a missed field goal. Anyway, mm. We're out of time. Uh, thanks for popping in. You got it. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. Every once in a while, you see a play and they're often... At smaller places, that's okay. Uh, community theater and small town or smaller town theater and sometimes off Broadway or away from Toronto or those, uh, some fascinating stuff that is being done in the theater. And every once in a while you see one that really catches your eye. Remember it was a year or two ago that Terry Fox, the musical, you looked and you went, Terry Fox, the musical, huh? All right. How's that one going to work? Well, they did it. And it was with the blessing of the Fox family, amazingly enough. So... But today, or yesterday, I was looking around and I saw this story about another play that's going to be at the uh, Blythe Festival, which is just up near Listowel in that area. And it had a really interesting title. It has a really interesting concept and it's based on something that I was not truthfully expecting to see in dramatic form now, or I don't know, maybe ever. Uh, the play is opening next month. It's called In the Wake of Westlaufer. Opens August the 7th. It's about Elizabeth Westlaufer. Uh, if that name sounds, a uh, Wetlaufer, pardon me, not West, Wetlaufer. If that name sounds familiar, but you're not quite sure why it's familiar, she was that nurse in Woodstock who was working at the long-term care facility and killed eight of her elderly patients and injured a number of other ones. So, the question becomes, how do you turn this, how do you turn that into a play? And I guess the secondary question becomes, should you turn that into a play? Gil Garrett is the Artistic Director of Blythe Festival Theatre. He joins me now. Gil, thanks for doing this today. Oh, I'm really grateful. I, I'm guessing, because I know this is not the first interview you've done, I'm guessing if you may have been looking for a little publicity for the festival, <laughs> this may have been a play to do it. Um, it's, it's been quite surprising, actually, to see the, the, the amount of uh, attention that's been 
garnered on the project over the last, you know, just even 48 hours. When did this, now, just for a little bit of background, explain how this play came together. Did you, are you behind this play? Did you write this play or are you just a director? How, how did this play come together? Um, so I am uh, one of the co-writers of the project. I'm the artistic director of the Blythe Festival. Um, so really it's, it's, it's me that um, uh, chooses the shows and, uh, we are a new play development house. So the shows that we put on in Blythe, and this will be our 45th anniversary season this year, we do nothing but Canadian plays. And um, we actually, our mission is to give voice to the region and the country. So we try to um, develop new pieces that are about this community. Um, and really uh, what happened here was uh, a, a wonderful writer uh, named Kelly McIntosh um, uh, called me up. She and I had collaborated in the past. and. This was actually back after the sentencing of Elizabeth Wetlofer, and at that time she had heard the um, the confession, because after the sentencing happened, they actually took Elizabeth Wetlofer's confession to the police, and they put it onto YouTube. And this thing went all, all over the world. I mean, suddenly you had people, you know, there's over a thousand iterations of it on YouTube now that people can all, all over the world can look at this thing. And... Um, she essentially um, was so struck by the fact that in the confession, Wetlawfer reveals that she actually told, um, you know, m- uh, uh, upwards of ten people over the course of the time that she was committing these heinous crimes that she had done this, and yet people did not act. They didn't go to the authorities. They didn't go and tell anyone. And she, uh, Kelly, was really trying to understand, you know, why are these people so marginalized and why why are these people so vulnerable that we would, uh, that somebody would choose not to act when they know that this kind of a crime is being committed. And Because if it was kids, you would expect somebody would immediately say, someone's hurting kids, we've got to call the police. Absolutely. Absolutely. Or if somebody's hurting, you know, mothers or somebody's hurting, I mean, there's, there's all kinds of things. Frankly, think. dogs. Exactly. But for some reason, the elderly and the infirm or people who are living in, in, in assisted living, uh, for some reason, are, are somehow written off in, in our society or, or somehow warehoused. And we think, you know, uh, we don't have to take action. And so, so Kelly was struck by that. And then soon thereafter, the public inquiry was announced. And we were, uh, you know, really attentive to this. And... Uh, Justice Galise, who, I, I mean, I can't say enough about it, just an incredible um, uh, uh, public service that she did with this inquiry. And she tasked that inquiry not only with looking at the crimes of Elizabeth Wetlofer, but of looking at the state of long-term care in Ontario. And what was it about this system that allowed for this um, to happen? And that really, for us, launched a whole other world. So uh, Kelly actually started going and attending some of the sessions. Um, and while she was there, she got to meet um, uh, some of the, the, the family members uh, of some of the victims who were in attendance and actually began to develop relationships with them, um, start to build some trust. And, and With the uh, intent of writing a play? At that point, it was still totally exploratory. It was the idea that, you know, th- this is a story that we think needs to be told, but how, how are we going to go about this? Because one thing we knew we never wanted to do was put Elizabeth Wetlofer on stage. We didn't want to do a play that was somehow a, a reenactment of these horrible crimes. And, you know, you, you, you don't want to, in this situation, glorify or sensationalize that, that kind of horror. And yet, 
the story of what had happened and what its consequences were seemed so imperative. I mean, the things that were revealed at the inquiry were just mind-boggling. I mean, stuff like, uh, I, one of the things that really struck me was it came out, I won't name the institution, but one of the places where she was working and, and committing these horrible crimes, I mean, she was the night nurse responsible for 163 patients on a shift. She had a couple of PSWs there with her, but she would be there, the only nurse on the floor, 163 patients. I mean, how, I mean, even if you extract the murders out of the situation, how could, how could anyone provide care in that situation? I mean, what have we let this system become? So we started talking about this and, and had the great fortune of, of being able to develop some of these uh, uh, amazing relationships with people. And we realized that what we wanted to do was create a show that's actually, um, and, and this is where the plot of the play picks up, is our show is about a fictional family. Um, they uh, begin the play. Uh, they, their father has just received a, a, a dementia diagnosis. They're trying to decide what they're going to do. They put their father into a long-term care home, and while he's there, there's all the complications that go with that. It's a big strain on the family. Somebody wants this kind of care. Somebody else wants that kind of care. And some of the, the, their childhood rivalries, things like this, all come up, as happens with so many families. Dad passes away. They grieve him. And they're just about ready to begin moving on with their lives when the news breaks. And they learn that Elizabeth Wetloffer has committed these crimes. It's all over the news. And they realize that their father was in the same home as many of these crimes were committed. And they are trying to understand what happened and was their dad involved. Their dad is not named as a victim, um, uh, but they are left with this unknowing of, of what has happened here. So they actually go and attend the inquiry themselves and learn all of these things. Um, and over the course of that time, they also, together as a family, try to find a way to reconcile and come back together and and and, uh, and support each other. So, and Gil, you've had uh, some of the victims' families have been supportive of this. I understand. Absolutely. I mean, it's been it's they, and they have been absolutely phenomenal. Uh, just. I can't say enough about how amazing the families have been. They've been so generous and so in, uh, inspiring um, and really have, and at the same time, too, importantly, uh, have asked a lot of tough questions, you know, things like, um, uh, you know, how are you going to make sure that the audience at the end of this play don't leave in despair, <laughs> which well, is really valid. Well, um, in despair or somehow make her into a hero or something, because her exactly. name, look, her name is in the title, and and I find it hard to believe that if you had a play that tried to eliminate the uh, the bad guy, the bad woman entirely, if you had a play called I don't know, the examination of a public inquiry into long term facility deaths, probably not a big seller. So, but you have to somehow have her in it without making her a hero. And I understand for that reason, maybe for some other reasons, not every victim's family has been on board with this. You do have some critics among the victims' families. Uh, we have heard some criticism for sure, and one of the things we've we've really tried to do is open the door um, to those folks to to talk to us and sh- share with us um, uh, their concerns and have uh, an opportunity to have a conversation. Um, so, yeah, I mean, we've tried to address that where we can, um, and you know, it, it's a challenge. Like some of the folks 
who have been uh, our champions, who have really, you know, urged us to continue. Um, they've they've really just pressed us on the importance of engaging the community in a conversation and finding a way for us all to to really begin to to not only to heal but also to have a public forum where we can talk about this stuff. Like, there's no doubt um, that a, an amazing opportunity to change the system is on its way. Uh, Justice Scalise, who conducted the inquiry, is releasing her recommendations July 31st. And we can actually, uh, we're going to be able to incorporate those recommendations into the show, which is fantastic. We don't open until August 9th, and we've got time to be able to actually build that right into the show and try to amplify those recommendations. But the thing that I think is so critical, and, and some people have said, you know, why don't you storytellers stay out of this and let government look after it? And what I, I mean, my response to that really is, is government can do a degree of this work, but we as a community have to push for critical response to that too. We have to, we have to be able to, as a community, come together and say, make this happen and support our politicians or push our politicians because uh, they, they're not going to do it on their own. And they need to have that kind of a, a, a base of of support pushing them to make these changes happen. Gil, again, I, I go back to the sort of half-joking, uh, sort of sarcastic, although, you know, title that if you eliminate Elizabeth Westhoffer entirely from this, uh, it, it probably sort of fades away. No one really wants to watch a play that it, they're told is just going to be about a public inquiry. That, that's probably not the most exciting thing if you were to bill it that way. But what is our fascination then with true crime? Because the, look, there's no doubt everywhere you look now, Netflix and movies and books and podcasts, true crime is everywhere. Why do we find this so interesting? Because none of us want to really experience it. No, and that's a really great point. I mean, actually, one of the things that we've found really distressing over the course of creating this show is, is actually, like, the day of her sentencing, there was a novel about this, a true crime novel that came out. Um, the and, day of? Oh, yeah, and it was available on Amazon all over the world. Um, there was last summer already uh, on Netflix, there was a, um, uh, an episode of the second season of In the Mind of a Serial Killer that was up and it was out there. And it is, you know, full dramatizations, the, the very thing that, that we have tried to steer as far from as we can. Um, and it's on podcasts, there's all kinds of coverage of this thing. And so, uh, I mean, and then at the same time, for us as creators in attempting to, to write this fictional family, one of the things that we wanted to also look at was, you know, how do her crimes impact them? And in terms of they are left trying to understand what was allowed to occur here. Um, and they, so they, I don't know that we can really even talk about the state of long-term care without this. I mean, it's, it's one of the, uh, there's no silver lining to what happened here on any any stretch. Could we talk about long-term care, though? And you raised a really interesting point a moment ago about the 164, did you say? Yeah, 163. Patients? 163 yeah. patients. All right. And, and again, if you write a play that talks about one nurse, doesn't have to be her, one nurse looking after 163 people, probably nobody shows up at the theater to watch that. There has to be some sort of dramatic element to this. She provides that dramatic element, but again, it's a, it's a crime story. Yeah, absolutely. And, and it also is that thing that, that actually um, 
pole vaulted too, because I think that the, the thing that um, her crimes have have revealed is, is just how vulnerable the system is to this, and how desperate the system is. And then the thing I find even more troubling: now we know about her crimes, we know what she was able to get away with, and we know that a lot of the reasons she got away with it is because of the condition of our system. And yet, at the same time, we know they just let 50 nurses go in Chatham last year. They let, you know, 40 nurses go from the Grand River Hospital in, in uh, Kitchener last year. There was nurses in Sudbury who took to the streets to protest and try to get themselves a, a, a better contract. I mean, there's actually hundreds of nurses being let go all over this province, even as we are hearing... Uh, about the conditions that, that are uh, have corroded people's trust in, in this very thing that we all are relying on. I mean, I think that's one of the other things for us with this show is um, the company of artists who are working on it, we all have a really intimate and personal relationship with this. Like, there are members of our company who have parents who have di- uh, d- dementia diagnosis. We've got people who are working on this show who have parents in long-term care right now, who have siblings in long-term care right now. And we've, we've all of us been in some way impacted directly by not only the state of the system, but also by the consequences of, of what this woman did. Gil, there is there. I, I've read a number of stories about this in recent. I know the Globe had one not that long ago, and a bunch of other places. And, and essentially, the theory that they're asking or that they're questioning is all these true crime stories, even if there is a a, a legitimate and a good reason behind it, as you've been describing in this one, they're questioning the morality of it because it does, by definition, by necessity, raise the profile of the killer. Further, you can't tell this story without Elizabeth Wetlawer in this thing. It, what, how do you sort of get your head around the morality or the ethics of the fact that she is she is necessarily going to have more publicity because of this? I think the the thing that has recently um, uh, pushed me m- most there uh, actually was an incredible encounter I had with a woman who is right in the center of all of this. Um, uh, very uh, profoundly impacted uh, by the crimes of, of Wetlaw. For her and her family are still trying to um, uh, to, to get through uh, what has what has happened. And um, she and I were talking on the phone. And one of the things that she revealed to me is that since this all happened, her neighbors have stopped knocking on the door. That members of her church have stopped uh, dropping in or phoning her that she's actually been profoundly isolated on the other side of it and uh, is alone. And, uh, and we, we talked about this, and she said, you know, that she realizes that the thing is people are so uncomfortable with what happened to her. They don't know how to talk to her about it, and they want to respect her privacy, and they want to give her space. But as a result, she doesn't have people who are, are, are spending that time with her and is, and is feeling uh, profoundly alone. And so we talked about how do we as a community uh, support these folks, because this did happen, and, and unfortunately it happened on all of our watch as a community, and we need to find some way to be able to actually have a conversation about it. Um, I, I don't think that, um, you know, there's nothing in this show, for instance, we, we do nothing to try to uh, understand or, or justify the, the, the actions of Elizabeth Wetlawer. There's nothing in here to try to look at, you know, what her childhood was or what her life has been. There's nothing biographical in there at all. It's really about um, uh, 
what 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 she was responsible for and what the the fallout and the consequences are and that's really where we position the pieces in the aftermath uh, Gil Garrett, Artistic Director of the Blythe, Fest- Blythe Festival Theatre. Appreciate you taking the time today, Gil. Thanks for doing this. Well, thank you, sir. Uh, again, Blythe Festival Theatre. If that sounds interesting to you, you can go look that one up. That play starts August the 9th. And by the way, when I talked about all those true crime things and whether or not it's popular, remember the Serial podcast? Do you ever listen to Serial? That's S-E-R, not C-E-R, not the food stuff, the like serial killer. Uh, that podcast, which was a huge hit, downloaded 175 million time. So yeah, there is interest in true crime stuff. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on 900 CHML. This is the Scott Thompson Podcast, available on Apple Podcast and Google Podcast or wherever you get yours. And don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review so you don't miss a thing. I'm Scott Thompson, and thanks for listening.